Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and it's not raining. <laughs> My name's Paul Johnston. I'm an Edinburgh novelist, and this is the Times and Sunday Times Scotland event. Uh, let me tell you what's going to happen over the next hour. Uh, I'll introduce our author, after which I'll try and confuse him with complex questions, after which you'll have the opportunity to do the same thing. We have microphones that will come to you with willing runners. Uh, if you hold the microphone close to your mouth, and keep the questions short and succinct if you can. Uh, there'll be a signing session afterwards in the main signing tent. I'll remind you of that at the end. And one last thing, mobile telephones, no. Turn off, please. So we're delighted to... <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> it's never happened yet, but <laughs> there's always a first time. It has happened to me, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're delighted to welcome back to the festival William Boyd, who uh, we calculate hasn't been here for over 10 years, so it's a great uh, pleasure for us that he is returning this year. Um, he was born in Ghana, but uh, as he told me beforehand in the author's tent, he has as much Scottish blood as James Kelman. Uh, he's a Fifer and an Afro-Scot, uh, having grown up uh, in Nigeria primarily, but was educated in Scotland and also in France and at Oxford, where he also worked as a lecturer in English. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a CBE, and also one of the few writers who's been highly successful both in literature and in film. Taking his fiction first, he's won numerous major awards for novels such as A Good Man in Africa, An Ice Cream War, The New Confessions, Any Human Heart, and more recently, Restless, the Costa novel of the year, which has sold over 400,000 copies in this country. He's also written three collections of short stories and the speculative memoir of an American artist. On the film side, He's written screenplays such as Stars and Bars, Chaplin and Man to Man, as well as writing and directing The Trench, starring Daniel Craig. He's also adapted Evelyn Waugh's Sword of Honor trilogy and Scoop, as well as his own novel, Armadillo, for television. William Boyd's married and divides his time between London and Southwest France. According to The Independent, he is English fiction's master storyteller, perhaps we'll say British fiction here. <laughs> Uh, he's here to talk about his brand new novel, Ordinary Thunderstorms, which actually isn't out until the 7th of September, but is available here in the bookshop. And this is a world premiere, as it's the first time he's spoken about this book. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome again, William Boyd. Thank you very much. Um, I am very pleased to be back here in Edinburgh. Uh, I used to come every year. Um, what went wrong? Anyway, um, I'm going to talk just a little bit about um, how this novel came into being and, and read you a short uh, extract from, from the opening just to give you a, a flavour of it. And um, then we'll have questions and questions and answers. But um, the, the novel uh, sort of began to take shape in my head when I read uh, an article in the newspaper that in the River Thames, or from the River Thames, every year the river police remove 50 to 60 bodies. Um, they tend to pool around the Isle of Dogs, so if you're ever in that neck of the woods, keep your eyes peeled. Um, and I was struck by this because I live quite close to the Thames in London, and I walk by it almost every day. And so I'm very aware of, of the river in London, but you can live in London and be completely unaware of the Thames. And so this sort of strange bit of information, 60 bodies a year, that's over one a week 
we never hear about them unless they're kind of particularly grotesque, uh, mutilated corpses found um, bobbing by the Isle of Dogs. Um, so I thought, who are these people? And, you know, what's, what's made them end their lives or have their lives ended in, in London's river? And I began to think that um, that old um, Victorian Thames that Dickens wrote about, particularly in his novel Our Mutual Friend, still exists. I don't think Charles Dickens would be surprised to find that there were 60 bodies removed from the river in 2009. You'd probably think, say, is that all? Um, but it made me start thinking about London. It made me start thinking about the old city that is very close to the surface. And it made me think that maybe there was a way of writing a novel about contemporary London, you know, very contemporary London, uh, that had the river at its center. And um, the novel's journey is, in a way, a journey down the river from Battersea, Chelsea, to the estuary, to Canvey Island, and uh, the Who Peninsula, um, where, some of you will be aware, is where Great Expectations begins. Um, anyway, so that was the, the, the seed, if you like, for the, for the novel. And uh, I then had to think of a story to tell that, uh, that would, it, would, organize, would involve the, the river and would involve the city in all its many facets and involve contemporary London, which a city I know very well, having lived there for 25 years now, and seen it change uh, dramatically in, the, in the, the two and a half decades I've lived there. Um, it is, I think, the most uh, polyglot, cosmopolitan, multicultural, ethnically diverse city in the world now, um, more so than, than New York, for example, which I think used to hold that crown, but I think London has it now. And of all the big cities I've visited, um, some are bigger, some are um, uh, more dangerous, but none of them quite has this new character of London, it's, its racial, cultural, ethnic diversity. So I wanted to write a novel that somehow took that in uh, as a, a key component, but also that would reflect all the levels of society um, from the very top to the, the very, very bottom, uh, the bottom feeders, in fact. Um, and so I concocted this story about uh, a young man who loses everything and through no fault of his own, uh, everything that makes up his social being, his, his passport, his mobile phone, his money, his bank accounts, his house, his family, everything is gone. And I started to think, how would, some, how would you survive in, in the modern city, in modern London, without any of these things? And that, in a way, is what propels the novel onward. Um, my hero, who's called Adam Kindred, falls down this terrible hole and finds himself at the very lowest level of London's many societies and has to try to crawl out. Um, so I'm going to read you a little bit from the beginning that uh, precipitates Adam's fall um, and uh, give you a flavor of, uh, of what the, the tone of the book is like. I'm also going to read um, the epigraph, which is something I've never, I realize I've never done before. I always have an epigraph for my novels because uh, um, and they're very useful things. In a way, an epigraph for a novelist is, is a kind of clue to the reader. 
um, read the novel in this way. Um, and they're, they're, uh, they're highly useful little tool in your, in your toolkit as a novelist. And here's the epigraph from Ordinary Thunderstorms, which I lifted from a book uh, of climate studies called Storm Dynamics and Hail Cascades by one L.D. Sachs and W.S. Dutton. Anyway, here's the epigraph. Ordinary thunderstorms have the capacity to transform themselves into multi-cell storms of ever-growing complexity. Such multi-cell storms display a marked increase in severity and their lifetime can be extended by a factor of 10 or more. The grandfather of all thunderstorms, however, is the supercell thunderstorm. It should be noted that even ordinary thunderstorms are capable of mutating into supercell storms. These storms subside very slowly. Chapter one. Let us start with the river. All things begin with the river, and we shall probably end there, no doubt. But let's wait and see how we go. Soon, in a minute or two, a young man will come and stand by the river's edge here at Chelsea Bridge in London. There he is, look, stepping hesitantly down from a taxi, paying the driver, gazing around him unthinkingly, glancing over at the bright water. It's a flood tide and the river is unusually high. He's a tall, pale-faced young man, early thirties, even featured with tired eyes, his short, dark hair neatly cut and edged as if fresh from the barber. He's new to the city, a stranger, and his name is Adam Kindred. He's just been interviewed for a job and feels like seeing the river, the interview having been the usual tense encounter with a lot at stake, and answering a vague desire to get some air. The recent interview explains why, beneath his expensive trench coat, he's wearing a charcoal gray suit, a maroon tie with a new white shirt, and why he's carrying a glossy, solid-looking black briefcase with heavy brass locks and corner trim. He crosses the road, having no idea how his life is about to change in the next few hours, massively, irrevocably, no idea at all. Adam walked over to the high stone balustrade that curved the roadway into Chelsea Bridge and leaning on it, looked down at the Thames. The tide was high and still coming in, he saw. The normal flow of water reversed, flotsam moving surprisingly quickly upstream, heading inland, as if the sea were dumping its rubbish in the river rather than the usual other way round. Adam strolled up the bridge's wide walkway, heading for midstream, his gaze sweeping from the four chimneys of Battersea Power Station, one blurred with a cross-hatching of scaffolding, to the west, past the gold finial of the Peace Pagoda, towards the two chimneys of Lotts Road Power Station. The plane trees in Battersea Park on the far bank were still some way from full leaf. Only the horse chestnuts were precociously densely green. Early May in London, he turned and looked back at the Chelsea shore, more trees. He'd forgotten how leafy some parts of London were, how positively bosky. The roofs of the grand red brick riverine Victorian mansion blocks rose above the level of the embankment's avenue of plains. How high, 60 feet, 80? Apart from the sussurrus of ceaseless traffic, the occasional klaxon and whooping siren, he didn't feel as if he were in the middle of a huge city at all. The trees, the quiet force of the surging tidal river beneath his feet, that special luminescence that a body of water throws off, made him grow calmer. He'd been right to come to the river. Odd how these instincts mysteriously claim you, he thought. 
He wandered into Chelsea and almost immediately in the quiet streets behind the Royal Hospital found, to his considerable astonishment, an Italian restaurant, as if he were in a fairy tale. There it was, tucked under yellow awnings, badged with a Venetian lion in a narrow street of white stucco and beige brick terraced houses. It seemed an anomaly, a fantasy. No shops, no pub, no other restaurant in sight. How had it managed to establish itself here among the residents? Adam looked at his watch. 6.20. A bit early to eat, but he was genuinely hungry now, and he could see there were already a few customers inside. Then a smiling, tanned man came to the door and held it open for him, urging, Come in, sir, come in. Yes, we are open. Come in, come in. This man took his coat from him, hung it on a peg, and ushered him past the small bar through to the light L-shaped room, shouting genial instructions and rebukes at the other waiters, as if Adam were his most cherished regular and was being inconvenienced by their inefficiency in some way. He sat Adam down at a table for two with his back to the street outside. He offered to look after Adam's briefcase, but Adam decided to stay with him as he took the proffered menu and glanced round. Eight tourists, four men, four women, sat at a large round table eating silently, all dressed in blue, with identical blue tote bags at their feet. And there was another solitary man sitting two tables away along from him who had taken his spectacles off and was dabbing at his face with a tissue. He looked agitated, ill at ease in some way, and he glanced over as he replaced his spectacles. As their eyes met, the man gave that inclination of the head, the small smile of acknowledgement, the solidarity of the solitary diner, that says, I am not sad or lonely. This is something that I have happily chosen to do, just like you. He had a couple of folders and other papers spread on the table in front of him. Adam smiled back. Adam ate the house salad and was halfway through his scallopini al vitello when the other solitary diner leant over and asked him if he knew the exact time. His accent was American, his English flawless. Adam told him, 6.52. The man carefully adjusted his watch and they inevitably began to talk. The man introduced himself as Dr. Philip Wang. Adam reciprocated and supplied the information that this was his first trip to London since he had been a child. Dr. Wang confirmed that he too knew very little of the city. He lived and worked in Oxford, paying only short and frequent visits to London a day or two at a time when he had to see patients taking part in a research project he was running. Adam said he'd come to London from America, was applying for a job here, wanting to relocate, to come back home, as it were. A job? Dr. Wang asked, looking at his smart suit. Are you in finance? His speculation seemed to carry with it a tone of disapproval. No, a university job. A research fellowship at Imperial College, Adam added, wondering if he might now be vindicated. I just came from the interview. Good school, Wang said distantly then. Yeah, as if his mind was on something else. Then, collecting himself, asked politely, how did it go? Adam shrugged and said he could never predict these things. The three people who had interviewed him, two men and a woman with a near-shaven head, had given nothing away, being almost absurdly polite and formal, so unlike his former American colleagues, Adam had thought at the time. Imperial College. So you're a scientist, Wang said. So am I. What's your field? Climatology, Adam said. What about you? Wang thought for a second as if he wasn't sure of the answer. Immunology, I guess, yeah. Or you could say I was an allergist, he said. Then glancing at his newly adjusted watch, said he'd better go, had work to do, calls to make. He paid his bill in cash and clumsily gathered up his papers, spilling sheaves on the floor, stooping to pick them up, muttering to himself. Suddenly he seemed more than a little distracted again as if now the meal had come to an end, his real life had recommenced with its many pressures and anxieties. Finally, he stood and shook Adam's hand, wishing him luck, hoping he'd got the job, 
I have a good feeling about it, Wang added illogically, a real good feeling. Adam was halfway through his tiramisu when he noticed that Wang had left something behind, a transparent plastic zippable folder under the seat between their tables, half obscured by the hanging flap of the tablecloth. He reached for it and saw that on the front was a small pocket that contained Wang's business card. Adam extracted it and read, Dr. Philip Y. Wang, MD, PhD, Yale, and under that, Head of Research and Development, Kalenture Deutz, PLC. On the reverse, there were two addresses with phone numbers, one in Charwell Business Park, Oxford, Unit 10, and the other in London, Anne Boleyn House, Sloan Avenue, SW3. As he paid his bill, please remember his new PIN code, tapping it without hesitation to the handset, Adam asked if Dr. Wang was a regular customer and was informed he'd never been seen in a restaurant before. So Adam decided he'd drop the file off himself. It seemed a friendly and helpful thing to do, especially as Wang had been so enthusiastic about his career prospects and asked directions to Sloan Avenue. Walking along the King's Road, still busy with shoppers, almost exclusively French and Spanish, it seemed, Adam thought suddenly that perhaps Wang had deliberately left his file for him to discover. He wondered if it was a way of seeing him again, two lonely men in the city wanting some company. He decided it would be wise to phone ahead and so eased Wang's card out of its tight plastic niche, sat down on a wooden bench outside a pub, fished out his mobile phone and made the call. Philip Wang? Dr. Wang, it's Adam Kindred. We just met at the restaurant. Of course, Wang said, and you had my file. You have my file. Thank you so much. I just called them and they told me you had it. I thought it'd be quicker if I dropped it off. That's so kind of you. Please come up and have a drink. Uh, oh, here's someone at the door. That's not you, is it? Adam laughed, said he thought he was five minutes or so away, clicked his phone shut. Anne Boleyn House was an imposing, almost fortress-like 1930s Art Deco block of service flats with a small semicircle of box-hedged drive-in and a uniformed porter in the lobby sitting behind a long marble-topped counter. Adam signed his name in the register and was directed to flat G14 on the seventh floor. After his phone call, he had thought over the necessity of seeing Wang again. He could have safely left the file with the porter, he now realized. But he had nothing else to do, and he didn't particularly want to go back to his modest hotel in Pimlico. A drink or two with Wang would kill some time, and besides, Wang seemed an interesting and educated man. Adam stepped out of the lift into a wholly featureless long corridor, dark parquet, pistachio walls, identical flush doors, differentiated only by their number. Like cells, he thought. Or, in a film, it might have been a lazy art director's vision of Kafkaesque conformity. And there was an unpleasant, nose-tickling, odorous overlay of wax polish mingled with potent, bleachy lavatory cleanser. Small, glaringly bright light set into the ceiling lit the way to flat G4, where the corridor made a right-angle turn to reveal another length of soulless service flat perspective. A growing, glowing green exit light shone at its end. Adam saw that Wang had left his door slightly ajar, a sign of welcome, but he rang the bell all the same, thinking that it wouldn't do simply to walk in. He heard Wang come through a door, heard a door close, but no call of, Adam, do come in, please. He rang the bell again. Hello? Adam pushed the door slightly. Dr. Wang? Philip? He opened the door and stepped into a small, boxy living room, two armchairs close to a coffee table a huge flat-screen TV, some dried flowers and straw vases, a small galley kitchen behind two louvered half-doors. 
Adam set his briefcase down by the coffee table and placed Wang's file beside a fan of golfing magazines, all smiling men in pastel colours brandishing their clubs. Then he heard Adam's voice, low and urgent, Adam, I'm in here. The next room, no, please, not the bedroom, surely, Adam thought to himself, urgently regretting coming up as he stepped over to the door and pushed it open. I can only stay five men. Philip Wang lay on the top of his bed in a widening pool of blood. He was alive, very conscious, and a hand, flipper-like, gestured Adam towards him. The room had been trashed, two small filing cabinets upended and emptied. Drawers from a bedside table tipped out, a wardrobe cleared with a swipe or two, clothes and hangers scattered. Wang pointed to his left side. Adam hadn't noticed. The handle of a knife protruded from Wang's sopping sweater. Pull it out, Wang said. His face showed signs of a beating, his spectacles distorted but unbroken, a trickle of blood from a nostril, a split lip, a red impact circle on a cheekbone. Are you sure, Adam said. Please, now. With fluttering hands, he seemed to guide Adam's right hand to the hilt of the knife. Adam gripped it loosely. I don't think this is the sort of thing. One quick movement, Wang said, and coughed. Little blood overflowed from his mouth and down his chin. Are you absolutely sure, Adam repeated. I don't know if it's the correct now. Without further thought, Adam gripped the knife and drew it out, as easily as from a scabbard. It was a bread knife, he noticed as a surge of released blood followed the withdrawal, travelling up the blade and wetting Adam's knuckles warmly. I'll call the police, Adam said, and placed the knife down, unthinkingly wiping his dripping fingers on the coverlet. The file, Wang said, fingers twitching, moving, as if tapping at an invisible keyboard. I have it, Adam said. Whatever you do, don't. Wang died then, with a short gasp of what seemed like exasperation. Adam stepped away, appalled, horrified, stumbled against a pile of Wang's jackets and trousers and went back into the living room looking for a phone. He saw it sitting on a neat purpose-built shelf by the door and as he reached for the receiver, saw that there was still some blood on his hand, still dripping from an unwiped finger. Some drops fell on the telephone. Shit, he said, realizing this was his first articulated expression of shock. Then he heard the window in Wang's bedroom open and somebody step heavily inside, and the terror he was feeling left him in an instant, or at least he thought it was a window. Maybe it was from the bathroom, but he had heard the clunking sound of a catch being released, one of those brass handles that secured the mass-produced steel-framed and many-pane glass windows that gave Anne Boleyn House its slightly depressed institutional air. Adam grabbed his briefcase and Wang's file and left the flat rapidly, closing the door behind him with a bang. He looked towards the lifts and then decided against them, turning the corner and striding normally, not running, not unduly fast, towards the green exit light and the fire stairs. He descended seven floors of the dimly lit stone stairs without seeing anyone and emerged onto a side street behind Anne Boleyn House beside four towering grey rubbish bins on sturdy rubber wheels. There was a powerful smell of decomposing food that made Adam gag and he spat, squatting down to open his briefcase and slip Wang's file inside. He looked up to see two young chefs in their white jackets and blue checkerboard trousers lighting up cigarettes in a doorway a few yards off. Stinks, done it, one of them called over with a grin on his face. Adam gave him a thumbs up and headed off, still at what he imagined was an easy saunter in the opposite direction. 
Well, that's an ordinary thunderstorm. Uh, Uh, yeah, an, an ordinary thunderstorm about to mutate into a supercell thunderstorm, but uh, you'll have to buy the book to find out what, what happens next. Thanks very much, William. That was fascinating and tantalizing. Um, there are a lot of social issues in, in this book, as, as you kind of alluded to in your talk. Um, uh, big business, uh, conspiracies, evangelists, prostitutes, uh, the underbelly, as you say, but also a tremendous amount of pace, as we just heard you um, in your reading. How did you manage to combine those two aspects? They don't necessarily go together, I don't think. Well, I think it's uh, something I've always done. You know, I think all my novels um, uh, have a very strong narrative drive, whatever they're about, and they're all quite different one from another, but... Um, even uh, if you look at a novel like Armadillo, for example, which is about a loss adjuster and the insurance, behind that there's the motor of a, a massive insurance fraud. Um, if you look at a novel like um, Blue Afternoon, which is set in Manila in the Philippines in 1902, uh, there is a kind of serial killer murder mystery <laughs> lurking at its back. So it's just something I... I like to do as a writer, and I, as a reader as well, I like to be held by a narrative. So I think it's a sort of default setting for me that uh, no matter what the big concerns of this novel, which are to do with loss of ident identity, questions about how many, identi how many identities we might have as an individual, um, what happens if you change your identity. Uh, it's also a novel about the way we live now. Um, it's powered by this kind of conspiracy thriller, uh, which all starts with the, the horrible death of Dr. Philip Wang. Right, and your uh, main character, Adam Kindred, and we'll maybe talk about the name in a minute, um, but uh, he seems to be a, a bit of a naive young man who then spends the whole of the novel learning more about himself and about the society. Was that a, a kind of narrative um, vehicle that you found useful? Yeah, but I think Adam is like any of us, you know, uh, male or female, um, who isn't actively criminal, let's say, um, that you've, you've, you have to imagine what it's like to be thrust in this kind of situation. And you just have to imagine how you would react under these appalling circumstances. Mm. What would you do? And, how would you live and how would you hide? And so these questions, that's how, again, how I, how I work. You know, I, I, before I start writing a, a line, I, I ask myself questions. The answer to those questions provoke more questions and it ex expands exponentially and I end up with a huge aggregate of information about this book I'm going to write. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's really fueled by, um, in this case, by what would, what would I do? What would anybody do? Um, uh, you go underground, you hide, how do you, how do you live, how do you wash? You know? um, uh, and so I did a lot of research and uh, um, asked myself a lot of questions, but it's, it's, he's not, he's not a, a naive, I think he's more of an everyman rather than, uh, hence his name perhaps, um, but uh, he's, not a, he's not a candide figure, some innocent, wandering, guilelessly, around the world, through the world, or through the city. He's like you and me, think, falling back on whatever resources his personality and character provide. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you a bit about the methodology of, of writing that you use, and you did allude to that there. 
um, you know, huge aggregate, as you say, of information. Do you actually kind of, how, how do you turn that into a novel? I mean, do, do you have, uh, you know, the famous, um, you know, kind of um, record cards and that kind of stuff, or how does that work? Um, so, yes, to a degree. I mean, I, I never um, start a novel until I've figured the whole thing out. So, um, uh, you know, it's just the way I work. Some, some writers start and wait to see mm. how it goes and whether the muse will descend each day, but I don't want to rely on my muse. Um, so, I, so I spend probably twice as long figuring the book out as I do writing it. And it seems now it seems to be about two years of planning, thinking, researching to, to one year of writing. Um, and so I do fill notebooks and I do draw diagrams and I do you know, write the little, compile little dossiers on the key characters. Um, how tall are they, what color are their eyes, all that sort of stuff is done at great length um, long before I start on p page one, line one. Mm -hmm. And the, the, for me, the advantage of, uh, of writing of this process is that uh, I make all my mistakes, if you like, before I've started writing. I've gone up dead ends, I've developed subplots that fizzle out, uh, I've introduced characters that don't live but they're all discarded in the, in the preliminary period, the period of, of invention. And so when you get to the second period of composition, uh, you, you, can, you can write quite fluently, or I can write quite fluently, because um, I've, I know my destination. Mm -hmm. And so there's no excuse every day for not writing, say I'll go for a walk or see if, you know, what's, what happens next. Hmm. You know, uh, I know what happens next. So it's just a, a methodology that I've evolved and, um, you know, I, I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's not for everyone, you know. And, uh, uh, but it's, it means that uh, uh, the, the writing pro part of the book is, is uh, I mean, I do get ideas while I'm writing mm. and I make huge changes sometimes. But essentially I have a, I have the skeleton of the novel laid out in front of me and in the writing period of composition I'm adding flesh, mm. that's where I, the metaphor I use. Right. Um, very visual um, aspect to your writing as we heard in the reading and I guess this inevitably prompts the question about the sort of interface between your, your film work and your, uh, and your writing work. I mean, do, do, do you see things very clearly when, when you're writing? Well, I do, but I think all novelists have done that long before the invention of cinema. I mean, um, every device that the that film uses was in the novel before film was invented, mm. from slow motion, flashback, parallel action, um, jump cuts, etc., etc. Mm. All these um, tools that you think of as cinematic are, in fact, novelistic. Um, and I think that um, as a novelist, as a serious novelist, you, you you do think visually, you always have thought visually because you want your world to be as vivid and as plausible as it possibly can be. Um, and so, if anything, it's my novel writing that's influenced my films rather than the, the other way around. And when you move from the world of the novel to the world of cinema, you are, you are struck by, in a way, how simple film is as a, as a medium, as an art form. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all. Uh, there are, there are a few things you can do, um, but compared to the freedoms you have as a novelist, you're living in a world of, um, of constraints, parameters, uh, handicaps. Uh, you know, film is photography. Um, there's basically one point of view in a film, camera lens. Uh, 
in, in this novel, there are 11 points of view. We enter the, the minds of 11 characters. Um, very hard to do that on, on film because of the nature of the art form. So I've always said that the two art forms are really quite distinct, but they're often lumped together as if they're, they're similar in some ways, but actually I think they're quite dissimilar. Okay. Um, I guess another big difference is, well, the collaborative aspect of filmmaking. Novelists are kind of famous for going away on their own and shutting themselves up in a, a darkened room with a computer. Um, can you, you obviously can bridge that gap. Uh, yes, I, I can, and I, I actually like and welcome the collaborative side of filmmaking for a while. You know, I'm then, I'm then very glad to retreat to the, the study. Um, it's, uh, it is a collaborative medium, um, and massively so, um, and uh, I, that's why I'm so sort of vehemently against the auteur theory of, of cinema. Um, it's dependent on many talents all coming together and, and meshing. So the, the a film by credit is one that I find um, particularly, let's say, not offensive so much as misguided because it's filmed by many people. And the one film that I directed, I insisted on not having a film by uh, credit because I couldn't have made it without brilliant actors, brilliant art directors, editors, musicians, etc., etc. So it is a, a real um, all hands to the pump uh, art form. And, um, but it's very nice contrast to the very solitary business and the total autonomy you have as a, as a novelist. So I quite like moving between the two worlds. And of course, I'm very lucky in that I'm happy to collaborate because I, I know in the world of the, the novel, I am God and everybody does what I tell them. So, uh, so it's, um, it, it's, uh, it, I am slightly uh, blessed. I think if I was just a screenwriter, I'd probably be, I don't know, demented or drug addict or something. <laughs> right. Well, it's a very healthy <laughs> life being a novelist, yeah. Yes, it is. Um, presumably then you're not sort of vehemently against the, the auteur theory of, of, of the novelist, you know, the sort of death of the author and how meaning is much more created by the reader and that kind of thing. What do you feel about that? Well, I think, I think that uh, the, the unique thing about an, the novel is that it's a, it's a coming together of a reader and a writer. And um, that when that happens well, it's a, the most profoundly satisfying uh, aesthetic experience you can have as, as, as a reader. And for every reader of, of a novel, there's a different take on it, a different uh, experience. So there's a, a multiplicity of, uh, of responses, uh, depending on the number of readers there are. But the novelist, in a way, is steering uh, the reader to certain responses. But you can never tell. You, you get, um, uh, you don't know what a reader's going to take from your novel. I mean, I'll give you an, an interesting example. I, when I wrote my novel, Brazzville Beach, about three years after it had come out, I got a letter from uh, an actress at, at the National Theatre. And she just wanted to say how much she loved the novel. And she wanted me to know that on January the 1st each year, she reread the novel and then immediately reread it again. So I think, well, this is three years on. She's read the novel seven times, possibly, by now. And I don't know if she's still reading it every January the 1st, but obviously that reader is getting something from Brazzaville Beach that I never intended anybody <laughs> to, to have. You know. so, so, you know, it's a, it's, that's an extreme example of, of, of this coming together of, of uh, two imaginations, which is, is the, the, the writer-reader encounter in, in a novel. 
Sounds a bit like she was stalking that particular book. <laughs> no, I think, I think she must have seen it as some kind of self-help uh, manual <laughs> and, um, and uh, it gave her the courage to carry on. Um, but who knows? I didn't the world, ask. The world of the theatre, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned Dickens in, in your introduction um, and certainly seems to me that, that you know, your, your interest in social concerns and so on is very much mirrors Dickens. Um, would you like to talk a little bit more about that particular well, influence, I, I, if you see it as such? I could have said, uh, Dick, I could have said Thackeray or, or Trollope as well. I mean, it's that, uh, the, the great, or I could have said Balzac or I suppose Tolstoy. You know, the, the, the 19th century novel took on uh, the whole of society and, and, and anything, and, uh, whether it's wars or, or parties or, you know, I could have said Proust. Um, but uh, it's, it's more that sense of... Um, of scope and scale, I think, that's the kind of uh, instant uh, correlation with the, the great 19th century exemplars, that, you, that you, you think if I'm going to write a novel that deals with, you know, commerce, politics, crime, crime prevention, you know, sin, wealth, etc., etc., you're sort of as a writer, aware of those who came before you and did it extremely well. So um, it's a kind. It's it's and Dickens is a writer I, I, I reread and a very very interesting man as well, a very interesting novelist individual. And um, our mutual friend, which was his last completed novel, um, was uh, in some ways his darkest. And who knows if his, if Dickens' imagination would have got darker and darker. I mean, he was only in his 50s when he died. Um, but uh, it's, there is a, a curiously modern sensibility alongside the, the 19th century pieties and sentimentality that you find in Dickens as a, as a ruthlessness and a kind of clear-eyed uh, aspect to his work, which uh, particularly as a, as a British novelist writing a novel set in London, that has many characters and is omniscient in the way that uh, Victorian novelists, novels are. Um, you, you instantly think um, Dickens, but I, I would say neo-Dickensian in, in my case. Well, a lot of those great 19th century novelists would be seen as being moralists. I mean, do you think that's a position that the modern day novel can, novelist can, can hold? Uh, no, I think, I think they were moralists, but I think they felt that was the novelist's duty. But I think um, the the I would say the, the other great exemplar which I could have mentioned is, is Anton Chekhov. And I think Chekhov, in a way, changed the face of literature as profoundly as, you know, Proust, Tolstoy or, or uh, Dickens. And that Chekhov, in his fictions in particular, but also in his plays, but in his short stories, uh, he made a point of not judging his characters. And it's a, it's a very modern voice that you hear coming from the mature stories of the 1890s, that he's not going to say, this is bad, don't do this, um, you should behave like that, or look at this, look how I punish this evil person and reward the good person. Um, he knows life isn't like that. And I think that paradigm shift that happened in the, in the novel at the end of the 19th century that makes Dickens and Trollope and Thackeray you know, slightly of their era um, determined the shape to a large degree of the, the 20th century and 21st century writing that, that we are, you, if you are a moralist, if you are trying to write some sort of tract in a way, then you should, you should write a tract, not a novel, um, because the, the realistic novel is meant to represent life as it is, not as we'd like it to be. 
And so if you're serious about your fiction, then I think you're, the moralist in you um, slips into the background. Right, okay. I, I'm going to ask William one last quick question, then we'll open uh, to the floor. So get your uh, thinking caps on for questions. Um, just to finish, William, um, it struck me when you were reading that piece aloud that um, another novelist um, could be adduced, and that would be um, John Buchan. Uh, had you thought of that at the beginning of the, th the 39 steps when uh, suddenly uh, someone is killed and... Well, I, I hadn't actually, to be honest. Uh, gotcha. um, <laughs> but it's a very good point, Paul. Um, um, uh, no, I've, I've obviously read, read my Buchan, uh, but um, it's not... Uh, it, if, if there is a, um, a kind of nod and a wink, it would be to the beginning of Our Mutual Friend, which begins with a, a body being hauled out of the Thames and thereby the whole plot starts uh, kicking on. But uh, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a device that um, you could probably find in any number of novels, mm -hmm. that uh, the, 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 the person in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and the consequences that follow thereafter. But um, it, it wasn't John Buchan, but um, I'm actually very interested in Buchan. He might have more of an influence on my next novel, funny yeah. enough. <laughs> Uh, elements of Hitchcock, I guess, as well, but uh, we won't go well, into that. Well, no, and I'm, I'm, I find Hitchcock, uh, again, heresy, uh, very overrated. Um, <laughs> um, I watched uh, Rear Window uh, the other night, actually, just to remind myself of it, and sat there shaking my head, going, what's all the fuss about? <laughs> but, uh, this is a heretical comment, I know. <laughs> Chairs are not allowed to fight <laughs> with the authors on platform, so <laughs> we won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Sir William, from me. Uh, we'd like to invite questions from the floor now. There's a lady over there. Sprint. Um, one of the things I found particularly enjoyable in your fiction are some of the very convincing, well, I found very convincing female characters that you've created. I'm thinking particularly of the heroines of Brazzaville Beach and Restless. And I just wondered what had inspired the way you wrote about women like that in your fiction? Um, I think it's, uh, it was... Uh, I know why I, st I started to write from the point of view of a woman, because when I was researching Brazzaville Beach, um, it was immediately apparent to me that all the key experts in the field of primatology were women. And so I thought, said, well, I, I, my central character should be a woman. And then once that uh, idea struck, it, it, it never left me. And so the the problem was how do, how does one do it how how do, you know how do you write from the point of view of the other sex and this applies equally to women writing from the point of view of uh, of men I think and I I decided after that you know it that it was pointless to go around canvassing opinions from <laughs> my wife and all the, the women I knew well uh, and I decided and I think this is the the, the key that actually. I would ignore all questions or suppositions of gender and sexual politics and received wisdom about the difference between the male character and the female character. And I would concentrate wholly on personality. And so with all the, and there are two women I've written about in Ordinary Thunderstorm as well. In each case, what I do is, get, is dream up or provide myself with an, a very clear sense of the kind of person they are. And so when, when you're writing uh, and you come across questions of motivation or, or areas you, that you might think entered the, 
the realm of gender politics, I just say to myself, what would somebody like Hope Clearwater do in this situation? And the answer comes very clearly because I know exactly what kind of person she is. And that's what I think makes the, if the, the character is plausible, then it, it ceases to be a problem of what is called in literary criticism appropriation. Um, it's just a character in a novel and the more idiosyncratic and more real that character is on the page, the, the more the reader will, will believe in, in her as, as a real person. So that's, that's my methodology uh, and I think it works very well and I'm sure it would work the other way around. If you're a woman novelist wanting to put your head in the mind of a, a male character, just think of that person's personality and, and there will be a, an inherent plausibility or even the implausibilities will seem to chime with the kind of person that that is. So that's how I do it. But the other thing, the great thing about it is from, from my point of view is that it, it frees up the entire population of the world for me to uh, work on instead of just you know 50%. I can now write about everything and, I, and I, as I've done in Ordinary Thunderstorms, uh, two of the key characters as well in this London are are women um, and I think if I felt I couldn't do that if I could only write about men the picture of society that I'm showing there would be um, you know one-sided so it's, it's a kind of liberation for me um, writing Braswell Beach liberated me to feel that I could write about any type of, of woman I'm uh, the women in Ordinary Thunderstorm is a policewoman and a prostitute so um, I have occupied their characters for the duration of the novel. Okay, thank you. Uh, right, we'll come to you and then to you afterwards. What I'm always struck by is when you undertake your research in all your books, which I've read, how authentic are some of your stories? Now, I'm particularly thinking of Restless and uh, particularly the American side of, of Restless, which I found quite fascinating. And I wonder what, how authentic, uh, or is it just no, something in your imagination no, from your research? No, that's, that story, the, the, the British uh, espionage in, uh, in uh, the, the States before Pearl Harbor is completely true and authentic. It's one of those uh, World War II secrets being swept under the carpet for decades. Um, but it is extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary episode of some 18 months of massive media manipulation that uh, British Secret Service was uh, carrying on throughout across the United States, all originating from two or three floors of the Rockefeller Center. Um, and you know, it's embarrassing. No wonder it's been uh, swept under the carpet because um, you know, th these were people we wanted to be our allies, but we, Churchill had authorized this massive campaign of disinformation. Um, so that is, that is absolutely authentic. And anything that is you know, of some significant historical sweep has to be um, thoroughly researched and, and got as right as possible. Um, there's a lot about um, the pharmaceutical industry in this new novel, which I've done a massive amount of research on, because I wouldn't dare to say the things I say about it if I didn't know they were true. 
Um, but the equally, as because you're writing fiction, you have this wonderful ability to to invent. And you know, I've um, built a hospital in Rotherhithe, um, added an annex to the Wapping Police Station, uh, all these sort of things that uh, help you um, tell your story um, and get you out of a, a jam um, are, are invented. I, I've, uh, in Brazzaville Beach, I remember getting a, a letter from my French translator saying, I've spent weeks trying to track down the names of these bushes and trees. Uh, they don't seem to exist at the French version. I said, well, that's because I made them up. Uh, <laughs> so, so you can do that. Uh, but, uh, and, so, uh, and similarly, a lot of the language in, in this novel, a lot of the slang, I've made up. Um, and uh, so I've sent a letter to all my translators uh, forewarning them uh, that, um, uh, that this is the case. So, so there's a, it's, you, can, you play with it. Because you're writing fiction, you can, um, you can you know, create your own world. Um, in my novel, Any Human Heart, for example, the hero meets Virginia Woolf at Garsington and takes an instant dislike to her. Um, of course, my fictional character never met the real Virginia Woolf, but Virginia Woolf was at Garsington that particular weekend in 1924, and the other people who were there were also there, and she wrote about it in her diary. The only thing is she forgot to mention that Logan Mount Stewart was also <laughs> there. And uh, so, so it's a combination of the two, but so it's a precise research with the kind of freedom to send your imagination anywhere is, is the great appeal of writing fiction as opposed to writing non-fiction, where, of course, you're totally hidebound by the need to be able to prove what you're saying. Thank you. Yes, sir. Can I ask you about the genesis of Any Human Heart, which of all of your novels I found fascinating and slightly perplexing, and not to the extent that your national theatre correspondent went to, but I pick it up periodically as I get older, and I see more things in it as Logan Mount Stewart gets older. So that's the first question about the genesis, and the second it's always struck me that it would make an absolutely fascinating film, but it would, would it be unfilmable? Um, well, I'll answer the first question. Um, it, I, it came about uh, as a part of a process of wanting to push fiction as far as I possibly could. To make a work of fiction seem so real, I mean, this is what we, we do anyway, but but to make it to go further, to invade the world of the documentary of history of reportage, and as I said, somewhere like a cannibal eating the brain of his enemy to make himself stronger, I wanted to eat the brains of the, the factual world out there and make my fiction stronger. Um, so that, that was the initial impulse. And it, it now, now I look back, and I can see I'd, I'd wrote three novels with the same motivation. Now, my novel, New Confessions, which is uh, a fictional autobiography, um, but written as if uh, it took place in the real world. And when it, when it was um, reviewed in, uh, by Ber the late Bernard Levin, um, well, much to my astonishment, um, he said so, something like, so convinced was I of the reality of this story that I found myself riffling through the pages looking for the photographs. And I thought, photographs, damn. 
I missed a, I missed a, missed a trick there. And so uh, the next book I wrote in this same sort of was uh, my little uh, speculative memoir, Nat Tate, which I don't know if any of you have read, which is a Nat Tate is a, a completely made up New York painter who committed suicide in 1961 after destroying 99% of his work. Um, but it, we, I published, the book was published as a little art monograph, uh, beautifully printed, like a little coffee table book, full of illustrations and photographs of Nat and his stepfather, and it had real people, like Picasso and Brack, and, uh, um, and also some examples of Nat's work, so a few surviving drawings that uh, still exist. Um, and that was a fake biography. And it worked brilliantly well. You know, um, it became a kind of, it has become a kind of notorious hoax. But it, it uh, wasn't really an attempt to hoax Manhattan art world. It was more an attempt to make fiction seem so real that it derived extra power. And similarly, so I, having written these two books, and that's 87, uh, you know, nine, 1993, I think, and, and then I, I thought, I can do it again. I'll write a fake intimate journal and see it, because the, the intimate journal is the, is the literary form that most approximates to the way we all live, because it's written at the present moment with, with no hindsight. You don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know what, if that decision you made last week is going to detonate in two years' time, etc. So it, it's, it has, a, has a very strong link to the way we all live. And so I, that's where the idea came. I thought, can I write a life, a man's life, in a series of journals that covers, actually covers every decade of the, of the 20th century. And, and Logan Mount Stewart lives until 1991. So, it, it, so I did a, did a life and I did the 20th century as well, but it's, because it's written as an intimate journal, it has a, an immediacy and a kind of vividness that the autobiography or the biography doesn't, because they're all written with wisdom of hindsight and they're all shaped in a certain way. The journal isn't shaped. You, you don't know that that girl you met last night in the pub is the person you're going to marry when you write the journal. But when uh, you write the biography or autobiography, that is known. So it has that kind of vividness and immediacy. And so that's where, that's where it came from. I thought, can I do it? And that's where I and then set about inventing a, a character and inventing a life for him. And your second question is very timely, because actually, yes, we are going to make not a film of uh, any human heart, but four films. Um, just as announced yesterday, um, Channel 4, Big Brother has been cancelled. And uh, I, I am the beneficiary, of, or one of the beneficiaries of all that extra money. Um, and the, we are we're going to make a six-hour television dramatization of Any Human Heart uh, over the next uh, few months or so to be to theoretically be broadcast around about this time next year. So we shall see. Um, it's a fantastic, uh, I've written the scripts, um, a fantastic, um, fantastic and rare opportunity. But it bears on one of my earlier questions. You will see vividly the difference between the novel and the film version. Um, I don't know how much I'm leaving out, 75% probably, because film just cannot do what the novel does. And uh, what you'll get, I think, is a, a theoretically a compelling piece of, of television drama. 
but don't go back to the novel <laughs> and uh, make comparisons because film always loses in comparison with novels. I'm afraid we've reached the end of our hour, ladies mm -hmm. and gentlemen. It seemed to go very quickly. Um, William, however, will be happy to continue talking to you and, uh, of course, assign books, copies of the new book in advance of publication date in the main bookshop, as I said at the beginning. If you'd allow us to leave through that door first, we would appreciate it. Uh, and all it remains for me to do is to thank very warmly William Boyd.